a young perspective on hot-button issues around the world. This is The Hub. Hello and welcome to The Hub on CGTN. I'm Wang Guan in Beijing. Japan's Prime Minister Fumio Kishida has started an extended tour in most of the G7 countries, visiting France, Italy, the United Kingdom and Canada, with the United States being the last leg of his tour. What is he trying to achieve? As Japan announces its biggest defense buildup since World War II, are we headed toward a new arms race in the Asia-Pacific region? First of all, let's begin with this report. The new security documents approved by the Kishida cabinet have sparked a number of debates in Japan. Some public concern have been expressed over Japan obtaining so-called counter-strike capabilities, which was stipulated in the government's three key defense documents, which might also lead to drastic changes in Japan's war-renouncing constitution. Can the current capability of the self-defense forces deter a threat to our country? When a threat becomes real, can they protect our country? We carried out a realistic simulation to state it frankly, the current situation is insufficient. However, experts say debate on the country's strike capabilities will continue for some time as it involves complex discussions on constitution revision and whether it is feasible to have such capabilities. It's actually very hard to uh, imagine a scenario where Japan would actually have to be called upon to use these capabilities independently on its own. It most certainly would need to work with South Korea and the United States to have any chance um, for that to actually work in a pure military sense. Kishida said he plans to increase corporate and tobacco taxes to boost defense spending and delve into natural disaster reconstruction funds. Currently, an additional 2.1% is imposed on income tax until 2037 to aid the areas affected by 2011 earthquake and tsunami in northeastern Japan. The government is now weighing the possibility of extending that time limit and diverting part of that revenue to defence spending. A recent Kyoto News Agency survey showed almost two-thirds of the public disapprove of the plan to raise taxes to finance substantial increase in defence spending. I don't think it is right to shift the budget for disaster reconstruction to use for the defense budget. They should issue government bonds to cover the needed defense budget. I support the increase in the defense budget, but it should be funded by issuing government bonds. I don't think we should increase taxes to cover the defense budget. The government is considering tax hikes in stages from fiscal 2024. Terence Teshima, Tokyo. For more on this, in Tokyo, Japan, we have Liu Qingbin, visiting professor at Huajiao University. And also with us, we have Benoit Hardy Shiran, adjunct professor of political science and international affairs at Temple University, Japan. Welcome, gentlemen, to the Hub on CGTN. Um, Benoit, let me start with you and talk about Japanese Prime Minister Kashida's trip to most of the G7 countries. Um, what do you think will come out of the trip? It's a pretty significant trip in and of itself. It's not very often that you see country leaders uh, visit five foreign countries in just such a short amount of time. Uh, in this case, as you mentioned, he's visiting five um, G7 partners, France, Italy, Britain, Canada, and finally the U.S., 
Um, and this is uh, sort of understandable, given that uh, Japan is going to assume the presidency of the G7, and the next G7 meeting will be held in Japan. I think uh, the message that Japan is trying to send is is pretty clear, and that's a message that Japan has been trying to send since 2012, uh, when Abe Shinzo, the former prime minister, was uh, in power for the second time. And this message is that Japan is no longer uh, only an economic, economically strong, but politically weak uh, country. It wants to play a greater role in the region and in the rest of the world, uh, whether it is on military, diplomatic or security issues. So that's kind of the message that Japan is sending. More specifically, uh, Japan wants to show that uh, it is uh, united with its allies in responding to uh, Russia's aggression in Ukraine and dealing with other international cha uh, challenges. So that really, in a nutshell, is the purpose of uh, Prime Minister Kishida's trip. Professor Liu, I mean, is Japan breaking from its post-war restraints uh, to take on a more politically active, more militarily active, strategically active role? Um, should China be nervous? What should Beijing be looking out for when it comes to this trip made by uh, Kashida to the G7 countries? I believe part of Japan's elites really want, you know, break this restriction and they want to play more bigger role in Indo-Pacific region. And that's why they had their new three documents about their security. And they want to discuss with Washington about that. And they also want the so-called UN uh, reform. And uh, But we don't think we need to be nervous because Japan is facing his inside civil serious issues you know we talk about this security new documents and uh, actually japan and also kishida's cabinet cannot afford the money to support their security plan and uh, they want increased tax but that's possible japan's people now they're paid almost 40 percent of their salary to tax and kishida wow. want increase more tax that's maybe civil revolution. And if they use uh, national debt, and that's also not the strong security or guarantee to their plan. And also the US will not feel you know, uh, satisfied. Noah, we've just heard from Professor Liu. Um, do you agree with his views in that uh, the Japanese economy, uh, the domestic politics of Japan might not support the more ambitious and even aggressive plan of the current administration in terms of military expansion and uh, you're playing a more strategically important role in Asia Pacific. This is a very interesting and important question because the support of the public will go a long way towards um, being able to realize the plan of the Kishida administration. Now, as the previous guest uh, mentioned, they are planning on um, implementing a tax hike, especially a tax hike on, on companies. Uh, that might not go over um, very smoothly because there have already been a few tax hike on, uh, on products and services over the last few years to counter the slowdown of the Japanese uh, economy. Now, when you're talking about something like this, uh, it's important to look also at the reaction of the public. 
And one thing that might seem surprising uh, for outsiders, uh, but not particularly um, surprising to me uh, since I've been living in Japan for a long time now is surveys have shown a surprising amount of support from the Japanese population for a greater uh, military posture and for uh, a, a greater military uh, budget for Japan. So recent surveys have shown that actually uh, the majority of Japanese people support uh, these hikes in military budget in Japan. That is due in part uh, well, it's due to several factors, but in large part, it is due to the current, uh, well, the recent invasion of Ukraine by Russia. It is due as well to the uh, threat coming from North Korea, with uh, which, as you know, in 2022 fired a very large number of missiles, many of which were uh, passed over Japanese territory. And finally, I would, uh, of course, there is the rising influence of China in the region and the rest of the world, which is also uh, a concern for many people in Japan. So for these reasons, many indeed are supporting uh, this plan by the government. Uh, Professor Liu, uh, I mean, how much of Japan's uh, concerns, um, legitimization of its defense budget increase, uh, do, do you consider necessary? I mean, uh, Japan says, and I quote, uh, you know, they have um, they will have increased their self-defense. Um, you know, the current deployment of missile interceptors, they said, is insufficient to defend it from rabbit weapons advancement in China and the DPRK, among other issues. According to media, uh, Japan will spend uh, $37 billion on their the so-called uh, stand of missiles. And uh, I don't think, you know, Japanese people will support this because thanks for the military industry and also media uh, conglomerate, now half of Japanese people are uh, willing to support the expense of uh, security, but they want government to cut some fuel's expense. They don't want government to issue debt or increase tax to afford this uh, security plan. They want to cut some government budget to afford the security plan or uh, defense expense. And uh, this so-called stand of missiles, and especially against North Korea and Russia and also China, I don't think Japanese people is willing to supporting this because they're confused about the so-called uh, military industry and the medias. But, but Noah um, raised a very interesting point in that uh, opinion polls showed that uh, a majority of the Japanese population, if the polls were, were correct, uh, indicate that uh, they do want Japan, the current administration, to play a more um, robust um, strategy, to play a more robust role in terms of its defense and um, you know, strategy rise uh, in the Asia Pacific region. And but you know, uh, because of the media, they use confused uh, phrase, uh, made you know Japanese people confused. Even they want they, they they follow government's instruction, also media's instruction. They want some kind of this ability, but they don't want use their money. So you can cut some uh, you know government budget or expense to afford this. Even half of them, you know, just to follow media's instruction, support the, the, the government shell 
increase their security expense, uh, defense expense, but not from my pocket. Okay, fair enough. Um, and then, Benoit, let's talk about the United States, uh, who is, you know, considering Japan as one of its best allies in Asia Pacific, uh, if not anywhere in the world. The Biden administration, which also adopted a security strategy in October, uh, expects Japan to assist in the supply and storage of fuel and munitions in case of a in the Taiwan emergency, um, and Japan and the United States are also reportedly considering establishing a joint command to deal with uh, the situation across the Taiwan Strait, which of course China considers its domestic uh, affairs. Um, how would Beijing respond? I mean, uh, or rather, to what extent do you think a closer ties between Japan and the United States concerning Taiwan will escalate tensions in the what they call the Indo-Pacific region? Right. This has, um, for obvious reasons, been a major topic of debate here in Japan over the last year, because with the tensions rising across the Taiwan Strait, uh, there have been many um, questions within the government regarding what role Japan would potentially uh, take in case of a contingency, a contingency, in case of an emergency where the United States would potentially uh, intervene. If the United States does not intervene in the case of a Taiwan contingency, then the question is moot. The Japan will not intervene, obviously, by itself. However, if, if uh, there is an emergency and if uh, the, the United States, as uh, President Biden said they would, and if they intervene, um, then it's almost inevitable for Japan to play some sort of military role, even though it probably doesn't have any kind of uh, willingness to um, be a direct part of any kind of operation in the Taiwan Strait, there will be uh, some form of logistical support for the United States, given that the vast majority of its troops in the region, including the Seventh Fleet, is based here in Japan. So it's impossible for Japan not to be uh, not to be involved in some way in case of a contingency where the United States uh, intervenes. So that's a big question here. I think uh, most people in Japan, especially in the administration, support uh, Japan playing some sort of role in that case. Uh, but if, to go back to your question, if this is a contingent, contingency that comes to pass, uh, this will certainly have massively uh, deleterious effects on the relations between Japan and China. Because even though uh, the current state of the relationship is relatively uh, unstable uh, between Japan and China, there is a, a willingness on both uh, on both the part of Tokyo and Beijing uh, to maintain channels of communication to ensure stability. Uh, we know that uh, there's going to be um, some uh, high-level visits and summits between uh, Japan and China over the next few months. Uh, so that's an important step here. But a some kind of conflict contingency over the Taiwan Strait could completely uh, wipe away the efforts at maintaining stability between the two countries. Right. Uh, Professor Lee, how do you expect uh, Japan's military budget buildup uh, uh, to affect China-Japan relations going forward? I hear some uh, stories in Japan about their budget. Uh, even, you know, they will uh, spend $37 billion on stand-off missiles. But a very interesting story is there is no people want to join self-defense force, Japan's SDF. So the Japanese government will change the self-defense force retire plan. Now uh, you can get retired in SDF. 
you know, uh, until 55. But since no younger people join SDF, they need to change the retire plan, you know, to delay to 65. So more defense budget will spend on their, you know, uh, on their on their older self-defense force members. Mm-hmm. And that's the biggest expense of their budget plan. And uh, I I think it sounds very weird, but it's Japan's reality. But the $37 billion spent on Tomahawk is a real threat to this region. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about, um, uh, you know, the regional conflicts in Eurasia, in Ukraine. Uh, Prime Minister Kashida has also been invited to visit Ukraine. He might, he might not. We don't know yet. Um, uh, Professor Liu, how do you consider a, a potential visit by Kashida to Ukraine? I mean, uh, we know that Japan uh, follows in locksteps with the United States, but a visit to Ukraine, uh, where a war is going on by a Japanese prime minister, is still um, pretty rare, right? Yes, it's very rare, but it's uh, uh, it's related to Kishida's ambitions. You know, Japan this year will play a, a non uh, non permanent member in UN Council and about the Security Council, and Japan is saying or is one, they have, you know, joined the uh, UN Security Council as permanent member. So they really want, you know, uh, take initiative this year to start UN Security Council's reform. And because of Russia, Ukraine, and so many countries raised questions about Russia, and especially like Japan, like German, like German. And uh, Kishida want to visit Ukraine to get some, you know, support or from Ukraine. And now they can start their initiative in UN to start the UN Security Council reform. And maybe they can uh, start some way about UN Security Council's reform. And now, you know, Japan want to use G7, a a closed uh, group, a very small group, you know, to start this kind of uh, reform. And Japan may change some status in their UN's membership. But you know, uh, UN charters still, you know, put Japan and Germany as enemy. But Noah, in the French-Canadian newspaper La Presse last May, you said that following the conflict in Ukraine, Japan made a a vote face and dramatically toughened its stance towards Russia after 10 years of relatively peaceful relations with Moscow. Is the Russia-Ukraine conflict providing the ideal uh, pretext, if you will, for Japan's military buildup? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And it's important to ask that question because um, a lot of this talk about a Japanese buildup has been uh, occurring since uh, the February 24 uh, Russian invasion. So therefore, it's perfectly normal uh, for many people to assume that there might be a, a link between uh, that conflict and the um, military buildup that we're currently seeing in Japan. Um, however, as I mentioned at the very, at the very beginning of the show, the current uh, military buildup in Japan is not so much a, a sudden uh, break or a kind of revolution, but rather it is a continuation of an evolution that has been ongoing uh, for more or less 10 years. This started, as I mentioned, at the outset uh, when former Prime Minister Abe Shinzo was in power. 
um, and where he made a lot of reforms uh, in order to make Japan a more significant uh, security uh, player in the region. This continued uh, with Prime Minister uh, Suga. Uh, this is continuing as well under Prime Minister Kishida. So it is, again, a continuation. Um, now, however, the Russian war in Ukraine certainly highlights for Japan the severity of the security environment. Because let's remember that Japan and, Nor uh, and Russia are neighbors. Uh, they also have a territorial disputes over the northern territories. This is a dispute that has been ongoing since World War II. Japan and Russia have not signed a peace treaty, so technically they are still at war. Uh, so Japan obviously feels a threat from or potential threat uh, coming from uh, Russia. So it makes sense that in this context, the uh, the invasion of Ukraine would highlight uh, the potential danger for Japan. Um, I want to say, however, to finish, um, frankly, even without the war, without the war in Ukraine, Japan was poised to increase its military budget regardless. Um, but of course, the invasion of Ukraine, which is such a, a violation of international norms, Japan um, has felt compelled to respond in very strong terms, which is what I was talking about in the article uh, you mentioned. But Japan is not the only country that did that. You just have to look at Germany and Europe, for example. Germany also completely reversed its position on Russia. It has become, it now has declared its intention to become a much more significant um, military power in Europe. So you see that Japan is just one of many countries that have been so uh, shocked by the Russian actions that they are um it, it's it's given it's giving further justification to uh play a greater role in their respective region yeah a lot of ripple effects from the war in Ukraine of course um you know let's hope uh, that it's not going to lead up to a military buildup uh, or a significant military buildup in the rest of the world uh, now let's turn to the G7 in Hiroshima Japan later this year in May actually um, Professor Liu, how do you look at the efficacy and the impact of G7 now that Russia has been excluded, uh, now that there have been a number of new platforms such as the BRICS, uh, the G20, among other uh, institutions? Okay, G7 is a very closed and small groups. And now I have very good praise for them. They use mm. some so-called common values to mm. grab real values. I believe common values is not what they define, like you know, democracy and freedom. I believe common values is pro progressiveness and also tolerance. What they define the democracy and the freedom now is totally wrong, I think, especially about G7. But Kishida still want play a big role in his hometown Hiroshima, and also want you know uh, make his own monument about that. And uh, consider the Russia-Ukraine, the G7 didn't play a very good role. They only encouraged uh, Ukraine and uh, didn't bring peace. And uh, this time, Kishida will play a big role in his hometown, but I still want him to make G7 more open because now G7's totally uh, value of uh, products and is you know smaller than China's and uh, the BRICS and the, the so-called global source now can play more bigger role 
I really want G7 to think about them. And also, Kishida in Asia can really hear Asian people's voice. Benoit, uh, what do you think about G7? Is G7 increasingly pitted against the global south in a Cold War 2.0, perhaps? Yeah, it's it's again. This is something that I I fully understand how people perceive uh, perceive this because we have entered um, a world over the last couple of years, but even more so in 2022, where it seems like we have. Uh, various blocks that are pitted um, against each other. Um, I don't particularly or necessarily see it as being the North, uh, the global North versus the, the global South. Um, as Professor Liu said, I think uh, the G7 um, is a relatively closed group. It, it does uh, remain important. However, it is seven of the largest uh, economies in the world. And by virtue of these countries' economic importance, uh, the G7 does still have quite a bit of clout. Um, it provides for the partners of the G7 an opportunity to uh, show unity, to uh, coordinate responses on important global issues. However, um, it's also important to mention that the G7 has lost some of its uh, influence and luster over the last um, maybe decade. As far as multilateral me mechanisms go, the G20 is now more important, which is much more inclusive. It includes China, uh, it includes Russia, but it also includes other emerging economies like India, uh, Indonesia, or South Africa. And so having a more inclusive group like this is much more conducive to uh, co coordinating uh, the global response to various issues and to ensuring uh, financial stability, which was one, which is one of the main goals of the G20. And there are also other mechanisms that Professor you talked about, like, of course, uh, the BRICS and uh, and other summits as well. So I, I don't want to completely dismiss uh, the G7. It is one of many group, one particular group of Western like-minded countries, but their goal is not necessarily to pit themselves or to oppose uh, another part of the world, even though, of course, they have shared concerns over some of the recent trends in international affairs. For sure, for sure. Um, they have their own perceptions about uh, the realities, and uh, it may not be their intention uh, to pit themselves against the rest of the world, China, Russia, for example, uh, but that might, not, that might be the result. All right, um, has been a great discussion, uh, but I'm afraid that's all the time we have. Professor Liu, Badon Hardy, Sharon, um, both of you in Japan, thank you so much for your perspectives. We learned a lot. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that will do it for this edition of the Hub on CGTN. Thank you for joining us. Mm -hmm.